namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa udhang dhammang sanghang In recent weeks, I've uh, found I had quite a lot of conversations with people, old friends, companions. There seemed to be a a theme that came out of these conversations that was some of these people were saying how delighted they were, how extremely happy they were about seeing the benefits of practice. Some of these people who I've known for many, many years and practicing for a long time, done lots of retreats and and uh, and yet something recently just clicked and a real feeling of uh, delight and seeing the benefit of practice. And then there are, there were others who we're talking about after all these years of practice it just don't seem to be seeing any benefit what's the point of it all anyway so i got to thinking about this and all of these people are good people and they're all certainly making an effort they're not people just hanging out and wasting time and wondering if it was something to do with how how we how we hold our practice, how we, what are we looking for? What do we expect? And um, so one of these people, he and his wife have been living in the country and they want to move. They used to live in London and then they moved to live in the countryside and, um, and so now they've decided living in the countryside is not for them. They want to go back to live in London. And they've been looking online, looking around and, and found this absolutely perfect place, this wonderful property, just what they're looking for, just what they need. And But you know how it is selling properties in this country, that you've got to wait until you've sold what you've already got before you can move on. And so this produced quite a bit of tension. And this was a few weeks ago. He was talking to me about uh, the predicament and finding this place that he really wanted. And... Um, and just really focused on how to get it. And it was, it, he was uncharacteristically stressed. Uh, I, I've, as I said, I've known this guy for a good while, and he's a pretty, pretty relaxed sort of person. And, but he wasn't sounding very happy, and uh, very unhappy, actually. And, and I was a bit concerned about him, um, more so than usual. And, and so uh, uh, a few weeks went by, and then we, we talked again, and I asked him how he's doing. And and how the whole process of buying a new house was going. And he said, oh, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. He said, I've, I've just dropped it. I've just dropped it. I had this conversation with a, another dumber friend, and he just happened to make a passing comment about how much I was wanting this new property and how much I was suffering. And he said, and I saw it. He said, I saw for the first time in my life 
what these teachings are about. We've been, he said, I've heard about it, I've been listening to tapes, I've been going on retreats, reading books and Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Path, to clinging to desire as a cause of suffering, but he said, I actually saw it. And something significant happened for him. He actually let go. And, and it wasn't a small thing. It was a really, as I said, he'd been practicing for many years, but he, he really experienced for himself this, this letting go of the cause of suffering. And it was just a, a small thing, really, for anybody else. You think, well, you know, we all have desires, and it's not a big deal. And in a way, it's not a big deal, but it can be a big deal. And in his case, it was becoming a big deal, and their relationship was suffering, and a lot of stress in their life as a result of what? There's, there's nothing wrong with wanting to buy a new house. There's nothing wrong with wanting to move to London. But there was something wrong with the way that he was wanting. And in that moment, eventually, something shifted. Just a conversation he had, as I said, with a dumber friend, and something shifted, and letting go happened. And he was clearly overjoyed about it. I mean, really, uh, really delighted. And... Um, and similarly, a few weeks ago, I, was, I, I spoke an evening about the woman in Mexico who, who got in touch. And uh, she was talking about this experience of, um, she'd had with her uh, external hard drive of Dhamma Talks. And she had been, uh, she'd spent two years downloading Dhamma Talks her favorite Dhamma talks, her favorite teachers and all her reading material and had everything stored on an external hard drive and she was really happy about this and she's um, sounds a little excessive to me but she says sometimes she listens to Dhamma talks all day long. She's got her, her uh, MP3 player or whatever it is plugged in and she's doing her chores and she's listening to Dhamma talks and she's really getting a lot out of listening to Dhamma talks and she's very pleased with her collection of Dhamma talks. And then uh, she had 4,000 of them, actually. And uh, she was very diligent. And, and so uh, she was relating how one day she was formatting a thumb drive uh, on the computer and just wondering, you know, why, why, why is this thumb drive taking so long to be formatted until it was too late and she realized she'd completely wiped her hard drive and her 4,000 Dhamma talks were gone completely. All her resources, all her reading material, everything was gone. And she said, you know, the wonderful thing is, it's a week later, and she says, I don't feel a thing. I don't feel anything. Often when she was listening to the Dhamma talks and sitting meditation, I'm sure it's the same for many of us, you think, what's the point of all this? You don't really see it as it's happening. But then something like that happens, and as she was expressing in her letter to me, she saw the benefit. Letting go happens. Now, if we, if we hear of situations like this and, and then we, we set up the idea of, oh, I've got to let go, letting go, you know, endlessly, listen to talks by Ajahn Sumato, endlessly going on about letting go, and you read Ajahn Chah's books and translations and endlessly going on about letting go, and so we make letting go the goal, and so we, we set ourselves up. We've got to let go of our attachments. This is what good Buddhists do. We let go of things, and... But if we're not careful, this goal that we set up to let go of our attachments can in itself become an obstruction. 
And so in conversation with some of the other people that uh, I've been talking with recently, and um, there's somebody that I know who, he lives abroad, and, and we communicate quite regularly, and, and he, he, he's, he's getting older, and, um, <clears throat> as we all are, and he was just reflecting on life and practicing, and just says, just nothing seems to change. Is this, is this all there is? Is it going to be like this? You know, you, you find we're over 60 and your memory's starting to go and, and your joints are seizing up and, and you think the future's not bright. And all these years of practice, all the study I've done, all the dumber talks I've listened to, and what's the point in it anyway? And, um, and in conversation with him, I, and I've known this chap for a while, and, and I know he used to have some, uh, some serious uh, unhelpful habits. Um, and we talked about that. Well, actually, you don't do that anymore. And actually, you don't do this anymore. And if we don't set up ourselves in practice in a way whereby we're expecting ourselves to let go of everything. If we, we start in practice with this inspiration for the Buddha's realization. The Buddha got enlightened, and it's wonderful that we're fortunate that we've come across this teaching that tells us that this realization is possible for human beings. Whatever it was, was it reading or listening or meeting somebody, the the faith arises, the inspiration arises in the mind, in the heart. is more than just an idea, but something happens to the heart whereby we get the feeling that behind all this apparent chaos, there is inherent order. It's not just random chaos. It's not just all change. The Buddha talked about realizing changelessness. It's not all conditioning. You realize how many of your habits are uh, just conditioned to think certain ways, to speak certain ways, to do certain things, and, and all this conditioning that we've been subjected to, and, and we find ourselves caught up in our habits over and over again, and just think, oh, this, what, what is all this conditioning? Where's the freedom? Well, the Buddha asked a question like that, and he realized what he called the unconditioned. And so from the perspective of the Buddha's enlightenment, the changeless state, the unconditioned state, he realized perfect freedom. And when we come across this teaching, we come across those who have followed this teaching and realized for themselves that inspiration and, and faith uh, appears in us and, and the energy that comes with that. And, and then we think, well, I want that. I want to do that. And we orient our lives towards enlightenment. But if we set up the big E as the goal, we can also be setting ourselves up for a lot of trouble because, uh, you know, it's not so easy as we've probably all discovered. You know, these habits uh, are strong and ignorance is a massive force and greed, aversion and delusion are really nasty toxins that we're all struggling with. And so, yes, we have the inspiration and that's wonderful Faith in the possibility of, of perceiving, penetrating the inherent order in all existence. Uh, it's essential that, that we have such confidence. But if we hold on to that too tightly, then we're actually missing out on our life, the life that we're living here and now. So in this case, this, this, um, this fellow 
that I was talking about. Yeah, he's let go of a lot, actually. But there's this feeling of, well, I should be better. Well, do we have to always be putting that on ourselves? I should be better. What about... What about actually feeling contented with incremental improvements? Or what about being contented with the fact that we're not getting any worse? I mean, it's actually, it's actually very easy to make serious mistakes in life. It's a, it's a very easy thing to do, to um, make a mess of life. And if we're not making a mess of our life, if, and it's just... Uh, we're not going backwards. We've let go of some of our habits, our incremental improvements, if we dwell on that instead of the big E. And another friend, locally actually, somebody very recently was talking about uh, her experience and, and saying how things just don't seem to change. You know, everything seems to just go round and round in circles. And, and so I... I suggested this to her about, well, what about incremental improvements? You know, just small moments. If we stop, you know, if we let go of the grandiose, greedy tendencies of mind that I want to let go of all my greed, aversion and delusion, or I want to, I want to stop getting angry at people. It's completely, you know, and then what you... You watch the news, how can you not get angry when you watch the news? I mean, you know, it's very difficult. I, you wanna, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to I'm not going to spend anything more on Amazon or whatever it is you spend your credit card on. It's just not going to do it. And then you go on and you think, well, a little bit of this and the next thing you're buying stuff again and you're feeling bad about it. Well, instead of always expecting ourselves to be perfect, how about we just we just practice little moments of waiting longer before we react. So in other words, making practice realistic. Instead of of insisting that we have to be making rapid progress towards the big E, you come back to feel this. Can I just wait a little bit longer before I get angry? Next time. Instead of thinking I've got to keep all the five precepts absolutely perfectly, well, could I keep them a little bit better? Of course we aspire to keep the five precepts. But expecting ourselves to be perfect is not wise, is not skillful. So there were, there were a couple of other people also who recently, one fellow who um, got in touch who very sadly, um, suddenly found his marriage coming to an end. And the wife went away and um, didn't come back. Went away to visit family and, and the next thing he knows he's got a letter saying that it's all over and uh, certainly wasn't expecting that. This is uh, a friend, who, somebody again I communicate regularly with, somebody who lives in America, a... a um, very highly qualified, skilled specialist, great life, a lot of good things going, and then suddenly gets this letter that was really not expected, really disappointing. And he was talking about the intensity of pain, the intensity of sadness, the intensity of anger. But he's also talking about, he said, but he said, 
He said, it's not a big deal, he said, but, you know, somewhere behind all that, there's this stillness. He said, he said it's not like it used to be. You know, there's this stillness behind. Yes, there's still the anger. Yes, there's still the sadness. Um, a huge amount of pain. And, but behind it, there's a refuge, which was actually what he was talking about, was the, the refuge of mindfulness. This is something we can do. We can't do letting go. We want to do letting go because you know, we want to do enlightenment. You know. We read about it, we hear about it, and so we think being willful characters that we are, we're going to do this. And, but all this hammering away at it, we can't do it. We can't do the letting go. We can't do enlightenment. Yeah. But there is something we can do, and that's that's be present, that's be mindful, be aware. Increase the quality of presence, increase the quality of awareness that we bring to experience. Here and now, whole body, mind, judgment-free awareness is something we can do. And it seems to be that if we do do this, then, then there's a better chance that letting go will happen. Yeah. I think it was... Um, uh, Sri Ramana Maharshi, who who gave the image, he said it was. He said, "You're on the train now. You can put your bags down." Uh, you know, I mean, if you're on the train, you're still carrying your luggage. I mean, that's that's not very smart, is it? But and what, as I understand, what he was talking about was yes, we need the inspiration of the idea of a journey. There's a place to go. There's a goal. There is enlightenment. We trust in that. We have faith in that. There is a journey to take. But once you've actually started making a few steps in that direction, started keeping a few precepts and, and doing a little formal practice and, and cleaning up your life and, and orienting your life towards that possibility, well, then we can let go of the goal, let go of the idea of the goal. Yeah. Well, then Mara comes up and said, oh, if you let go of the idea of the goal, you're not going to get anywhere. You've got to hang on to the goal. You've got to hammer away and... There is an orientation of practice, goal-oriented practice, which does actually uh, encourage that. But that's not the only approach to practice. And if you've tried that for a while and it find, you find, as I certainly did, that it just increases the stress and, and rather than freeing you from stress. Yeah, yeah. So if you find that's not working, well then, yeah. yes, have confidence in the goal, but it's... If we've started on the journey, then there's other qualities that we need to be focusing on, not just faith. Faith in the goal is really important, really essential, absolutely, but not just faith. And Buddhism, one of the wonderful things about Buddhism is also we cultivate doubt. Not just faith, but also doubt. If we've just got faith, we can end up being awfully naive. So also we embrace doubt as well. In Mahayana Buddhism, there's a, um, a very tidy presentation of uh, the aspects of, of, of the way. It talks about the three ingredients that are necessary for practice. Great faith, great doubt, and willing endurance. If we've just got faith, well, we can get very sparkly eyes and get around you know, with a ticket on ourselves thinking that, you know, Buddhists are best. And, yeah, maybe they are. Maybe we do believe that. But maybe they're not. 
you know, maybe this is all outmoded, really. Maybe this was okay 2,500 years ago, but maybe we should be, you know, studying brain chemistry or something. You know? mm. Doubt is okay. We don't have to be afraid of doubt. In fact, if there's mindful faith and mindful doubt, they work like a dynamo. They work together. If we're attached to faith, well, then doubt becomes an enemy. If we attach to faith and then the thought comes up, say, well, I've been around Buddhists for a while and, you know, they don't seem any enlightened people to me. You know, they all still get upset. They still get greedy and I don't know whether Buddhism's the way at all. Doubt comes up. That's okay. Unless we're attached to faith. Or our meditation practice, we're attached to faith and then the thought comes up, oh, I don't know, should I be doing samatha or should I be doing vipassana? Should I go and do a Goenka course, body sweeping? And that's what I need, more, more force. Somebody was telling me the other day, I want you to force me in my meditation. I said, oh, sorry, you're in the wrong place. You know, I don't, I don't do force. Yeah. I'll encourage you, but I'm not going to force you. You can, you can go on a Goenka retreat if you want, and Mr. Goenka will make you sit there for however many hours a day and do your body sweeping and think, well, maybe that's what I need to be doing. Yeah, maybe you do. Yeah. Well, maybe you need to go out to Asia. Maybe you need to go to Tibet and get a, a master, a real master, somebody who can really read your mind and tell you exactly what you should be doing. Yeah, maybe you do need that. But if you're attached to the faith and the energy that comes with faith, when something like that comes up, you're really going to struggle. And, uh, or maybe the doubt, like, maybe I can't do this. Sometimes I just feel so disappointed with myself. I've been a Buddhist all these years and, and here I am. I don't have any friends. I've stopped drinking. I don't go around killing anything anymore. I'm completely boring. I don't steal stuff and I don't you know, go around telling lies and, and smoking weed and nobody finds me fun anymore. Lost all my friends and here I am totally unenlightened. You know, what's it all worth anyway? Doubt. Well, there's... Three things you can do if such a doubt comes up. One, you can rekindle the faith because you know you're not alone. I mean, that's not a, you know, that's not a bad place to be in. I mean, that was the place the Buddha was in just before he got enlightened. I mean, you read about the Buddha's story and, you know, I mean, you think you gave up a few things. He was a prince in a palace and had a very nice wife apparently and a kid and had everything, had great, great career prospects ahead of him. I mean, he had everything going. And he gave it all up and then for several years really went through extreme austerity. Didn't just have sore knees for a few weeks on retreat. I mean, doing a Goenka course. I mean, he, you know, he went through years of extreme austerity. And then at the end of it all, where was he? Nowhere. You know, the teachings didn't work. He lost his kingdom, lost his reputation, lost his wife. And then what happened? He decided to be vaguely sensible and have a little rice gruel for breakfast. And then all his mates left him. The five friends left him and deserted him. And there he was, completely alone, under the Bodhi tree. But that wasn't a bad thing because that was the harbinger of his realisation. So, if you're stuck with such doubts, you can rekindle the faith. Or the another alternative is you can 
bring your well-developed here and now whole body mind judgment-free awareness to what does it feel like to not know whether this is working for you now what does it feel like to think maybe i should go out to asia and get a real teacher now what does it feel like when you think I don't know about this mindfulness of breathing. I think perhaps I should practice loving-kindness meditation or jhanas. I need to develop the jhanas. You can read various books about developing the jhanas and you read the scriptures and it uh, praises the jhanas. And I don't know, there's just everyday mindfulness. I don't know about that, I think. So you don't know, well, what does it feel like to have such a doubt? Where in the body do you experience the feeling of uncertainty? In other words, instead of making an enemy out of doubt, take a deep breath, expand awareness, and feel the reality of doubt. Become familiar with the fear of uncertainty. No no matter who we are, where we are, we're always going to be faced with uncertainty. One of the few things that are certain is that we're going to have to face uncertainty. Guaranteed. Like we don't know when we're going to die, is one thing unless you have seriously well-developed psychic powers. So we don't have to actually take sides with faith. We can do that. Faith is a wonderful energy. But also we have the opportunity, if we've got mindfulness, well-developed mindfulness, we can pick up doubt. And then if you've got doubt and faith working together, they become like a dynamo. They generate an energy. But then, as I was saying, there's another ingredient which is really essential because you know, that energy is not necessarily easy to tolerate. Yeah. But what helps us tolerate that intensity is willing endurance. So if we have strong aspirations in practice, we have great aspirations and we have confidence in the path and we're willing to embrace our doubts and our fear of uncertainty... We also need this willing endurance. And now, willing endurance is very different from willful endurance. I tried willful endurance, and it really hurts. It's not, not to be recommended at all. Willful endurance, is, it, it leads to damage and to be avoided. But willing endurance, willing endurance is where we hear what all the great sages, the great teachers have said about how profoundly important patient endurance is. And the Buddha called it a, the, um, well, as Ajahn Jayasaro translated, he calls it the, the um, ultimate incinerator of the pollutions, of the defilements. It burns up the pollutions. Now, patient endurance, this is what the Buddha said, patient endurance burns up the distortions, the pollutions of mind. And it's not, it's not a second-rate practice. You know, we sometimes tend to think of patience. I mean, that's what some Victorian people used to call their daughters, you know, patience and, and so on. It's kind of this kind of pink and unpleasant kind of pathetic thing that wimps do. So, well, that's not the way the Buddha talked about it. That's not the way Ajahn Chah talked about it. That's not the way the great sages, the great beings talk about it. Patient endurance, willing endurance is a profound force for transformation. And it's something that we actually are wise to choose to cultivate. So instead of 
going back and reflecting on our initial enthusiasm for for liberation and enlightenment and pumping ourselves up with, yes, I can do it, yes, I believe in the Buddha, well, feel the doubt. Tolerate the unpleasantness of uncertainty. I don't know. I don't know where our world's going. You know, the economy's not looking good. The environment's not looking good. Yeah, you can get depressed about it. Or you can say, well, the truth is I don't know. There's nothing wrong with not knowing. There's nothing wrong with not knowing. We can make it wrong, but we don't have to make it wrong. We have a choice. So getting the message, actually really finding benefit, recognizing benefit from our practice, it does depend very much on how we set our expectations, how we view what spiritual practice is about. Yes, the, the view, the idea of the goal is profoundly important. But we can, as time goes by, let go of the way we relate to that view and come back more and more to this, this experience. What happens with praise and blame? Do I have to suffer when I get criticized? I do. But do I have to suffer so much when I get insulted? If somebody's rude or unkind, I still, as I've said many times before, my relationship with my mother is a good barometer for my practice. um, It's it's been with me for many years, and she's still one of my best teachers. And I'm becoming a little bit more grateful for that. And that's important. Like the other day, I... A, uh, a friend who in New Zealand who goes around to see my mother on a regular basis actually has become a good friend of my mother, which is very nice. And she takes her strawberries and home-baked cookies and, and uh, she, she goes and gives my mother little old lady massages because my mother's 92 years old now and you don't give her one of those tie massage, you know, elbow and the spine, you wouldn't. Just kind of little gentle old lady massage and my mother loves it. And she's really grown very fond of uh, this friend of New Zealand. And, and the other day she, she said to, because this, this friend and her husband are very committed Buddhists and, and again downloading loads of Dhamma talks and doing retreats and making an effort to keep practice and precepts and so on. And the other day I heard that uh, my mother had said to her, she says, you're, you're so nice, she says, there's, there's very little that's Buddhist about you. <laughs> and... Uh, I thought, oh, there we go again. There we go. I'm used to this. This is this is what this is what my mother says to me. You know, I've been the abbot of a monastery. I don't know how many years, and I, you know, I've been trying quite hard to free my consciousness from the distortions of greed, aversion, and delusion. And I, you know, try to make wish well for people. And but no, it doesn't count for very much in my mother's worldview. And but you know what was good was this time it hurt a little less. Yeah? And this is important. This is, this is relevant to focus on these things. Why do we suffer? If we're still holding on to the big E and thinking that's the only benefit in practice, if you suddenly find yourself you know, a, a, a liberated master, you know, well, then you might end up feeling there's no benefit from all this good effort that you're making. But if you relax and come back a little bit and see the small moments, they count. When we're suffering, to just say, why am I suffering right now? 
recently uh, Tungambiro here and I, we, we re- rebuilt Hana Monastery website. took many months to do it. If you look at it, you think, oh, that's not much. You know, it looks pretty boring, pretty plain, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe how... Uh, probably some of you do know maybe these things, but there's a lot of work goes into making a website that works and that's simple. And I really like it. I'm pleased with it. And so some people say they like it. Oh, yes, very good. Other people say, oh, I don't like that. How does it feel? Do you have to suffer? And if you do suffer, why are you suffering? What are we suffering for? Why do we suffer? Why are we suffering now? What are we doing now? What am I doing now with my consciousness? What am I actually doing that is creating the suffering? Now, if we hold on to the idea I've got to let go, maybe we're going to miss that. Remember, letting go happens. The Buddha didn't go on and on about the experience of enlightenment. He didn't say very much about it at all, actually. But what he did go on about a lot was that pay attention to this. Pay attention. Now, people... People sometimes misinterpret or misunderstand what the Buddha's teachings about. You read it in books, uh, <coughs> school books about Buddhism is all about suffering. Well, in a way, that's true. It's because we don't get the message. We're not getting the message. You know, the suffering is the message. Now, you don't want to dwell on suffering, get lost in suffering, get overwhelmed with suffering. That's that's bad management. That's not that's not what we're talking about. But if we're habitually distracted from suffering, if we always turn to our habits of avoiding suffering, well, we never get the message. You know, there's a message. How do we get it? Well, it's this very gradual, very careful, very interested investigation in what's happening now that means I don't feel so good. Yeah. Where... Is the cause actually the cause of suffering? And we are responsible for it. I was remembering recently when I uh, newly arrived in this country. Um, I'd been a monk for about five or six years and, and I came to live in uh, Chithurst. This is the very early days of Chithurst Monastery. And, and uh, the building, those of you that have been there, mock Tudor. Victorian mansion and riddled with dry rot and the ceiling was falling in. It was a complete mess. And, and uh, the monks who basically, and the Anagarikas, we were rebuilding the, the place. And, and somebody had um, donated the tiles. Somebody very generously donated the tiles to redo the roof. Big, very generous offering. And, and then the work monk um, decided the tiles had been offloaded into one part of the monastery the work monk there, uh, he decided they needed to go to another part of the monastery. And there were a lot of tiles. I mean, it, you know, the size of Chitter's house. Uh, it's a big, big place. And these tiles, it, it was my job to move them. Me alone, to move all these tiles from here to there on a wheelbarrow. And so I set about doing it. I don't know how many days it took me. But it was a really good lesson, actually. It wasn't a fun job. But what's wrong with moving tiles? Yeah, we're helping build the monastery. That's a great thing to be doing. What's the problem? If I was suffering, it was the summer, pleasant weather, just pushing a wheelbarrow. I had gloves, wasn't hurting my hands, picking a few tiles up, putting them in the wheelbarrow, wheeling them. What's the problem? Where's the suffering? Mm. Me. Mm. Me and mine. I don't have to be doing this stupid job. Yeah. My attention could be better used elsewhere. That's the message. 
Yeah, that's, that's what we're doing in the moment. That's what we're doing moment by moment by moment. Yes, the idea of enlightenment is very important, but what are we doing in the moment that is totally unenlightened? There's this attachment to me and mine, my project, my ideas, my views, uh, my reputation. Uh, this is where we're creating the suffering. And, and then my practice, we can make a problem out of that. You know, I'm not progressing fast enough. Yeah. It's like the the trees that we've been planting down at the lake. I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of trees that we've planted down there in the last few months. A couple of thousand trees, and and I've been going down there every day, sometimes twice a day, walking backwards and forwards, and uh, helping with uh, preparing the cooties down there for use during the winter retreat, and. And I find myself walking past these trees and kind of looking at them and saying, are they, are they growing yet? <laughs> I mean, that's not very clever, is it? You know, they've only been there a few weeks. So I want to see if they're growing yet. Greedy. But that's what we're doing. You know, we have this expectation about our practice. How long have we been indulging in our habits? How long have we been attaching to me and mine all of this life and Personally, I believe in uh, previous lives as well, and uh, eons of attachment to these habits. And here we find this teaching, and we so we, we we stop boozing and taking drugs and doing all the stuff we were getting up with up to, and then we think that we're suddenly going to overcome all our habits immediately. No way. But little moments, little moments. I mean, if you really have a look at those trees. They do actually grow a little bit each year. Yeah. Ajahn Sachito was here a few weeks ago and he's planted many trees down in Chithurst and, and seen the benefit of, um, of that work. And he, he, was, he was saying how with tree planting, you've got to be really patient, really patient. And so this willing patience, so great faith, great doubt and willing endurance, yeah, choosing to... Even when it feels really frustrating, my limitations, other people's limitations, the world, uncertainty, there is this option. We just, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to endure this. Feel the feeling in the body. Listen to what's going on in the mind. And see how we can little by little cultivate that strength. And don't underestimate it. Don't think that it's insignificant. There's a very well-known and well-quoted Dhammapada verse, verse 122, where the Buddha says, don't dismiss moments of right action, thinking this will come to nothing. Do not dismiss moments of right action, thinking this will come to nothing. Just as by the falling of raindrops, the jar is gradually filled, so with time the wise become replete with goodness. Just as by the gradual falling of raindrops the water jar is filled, so with time the wise become replete with goodness. Now, don't underestimate, don't dismiss small moments of goodness thinking this will come to nothing. Yeah, it's the small moments actually. You know, just as by the gradual falling of raindrops the water jar is filled, so with time the wise become replete with goodness. The inclination towards... Letting go, 
the inclination towards patience, the inclination towards generosity. These are virtues, these are forces for transformation that we can cultivate. When letting go happens, we, we can't do that. So I think it's a, a wonderful verse in the Dhammapada. Also, the, the verse before that, actually, was also worth noting, which is verse 121, which is, do not dismiss moments of wrong action, thinking this will come to nothing. Just as by the gradual uh, falling of raindrops the water jar is filled, so with time fools are corrupted by evil. So the Buddha's encouragement is, we don't have to just focus on the great enlightenment and the great insights, but appreciating the small moments because they count. So whatever we have ahead of us in the new year, uh, let's not forget the small moments. They make a difference. Thank you very much this evening for your attention. Thank you.